Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting app. I know it's somewhat annoying to keep having to harp on this, but it's a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting good ratings increases our visibility on the apps, which helps us build audience, which helps us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you're so moved and are feeling garrulous, maybe even write a review. Thanks. Today's guest is Max Borders. He's a futurist, a theorist, a published author, and an entrepreneur. And he is the founder and executive director of Social Evolution, a nonprofit organization dedicated to liberating humanity through innovation. Max is also co-founder of the Future Frontiers event, and he's been on the show before, twice to be precise. Uh, He was back on EP76 with his first book, The Social Singularity, and he was on EP115 for the first part of After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals. Today, we're going to continue talking about that book after the collapse. Uh, there's so much in it. It's only 300 pages, but there was so much in it. We got less than halfway through our top my topic list last time, and we're going to pick right up and uh, roll right along. So, Max, welcome back to the Jim Rutt Show. Jim, thank you so much for having me. I always have a ball. Yeah, I always do, too. I mean, we don't always agree, but we don't always disagree either. That's what makes it interesting. That's right. All right, before we jump uh, later into my topic list, let's do a little bit of recap for the audience here. And let's basically frame it after collapse. What kind of collapse? Uh, what kind of collapses are you talking about? And most particularly, what kind are you not talking about? Well, and look, collapse is a cluster concept in the book. I mean, I use it as framing. And there is a particular kind of collapse I think you might call the linchpin which is a financial collapse uh, surrounding sovereign debt. But I also identify in the first part of the book ways in which the American experiment is breaking down, and I call these breakdowns. So each chapter in the first part of the book is going to be the breakdown of something. And we talk about everything from the breakdown of uh, you know civility and civil order, the, the breakdown of uh, the, the federal government in terms of you know just – the, the financial matters that we discussed. But we also talk about, you know, the breakdown of, of community and mutual aid and the breakdown of hierarchies, which uh, is one of my favorite subjects because that really scratches the complexity theory itch. But in any case, there's these seven dimensions along which I believe that the United States experiment is collapsing. I think some of these apply to other countries, and it's really a cosmopolitan message. So it's really not a, just about America. I just think that these breakdowns are most pronounced in the United States right now. Yeah. And then the taxonomy I tend to use, the class of things that you're talking about are what I call endogenous collapses, i.e. we're essentially failing of our own institutions and our own structures and aren't necessarily being forced by an external forcing function like being hit by a comet or a solar flare or even uh, advanced climate change. So is it fair to say that we're talking here about internal collapses of decay and 
failure modes of our institutions. Yeah, I think that's that that's perfect. Some of the institutions are more formalized than others, but at the end of the day, the the thing to think about it, I like the the term endogenous uh, collapse, but I also use the term collapse of human systems. The human systems uh, description is really the level at which I'm talking about, and I think that the the breakdown or the collapse of our human systems is really the one that we need to be focusing on relative to other kinds of collapse that you might read about in a Jared Diamond book, for example, which might be a more ecological catastrophe. It's not to say that these kinds of problems aren't with us, but I'm trying to argue that, hey, we need to look at our human systems, at least a top three priority, if not the number one priority. Now, there's lots of people that talk about collapse and what's coming next, the Game B movement, amongst others, which you mention in your book. Uh, but another one that you mention in your book, which I always uh, am interested in, is called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. What is that? And what do you think about that as a possible what comes next after the collapse of our current civilization? Yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to mention the fully automated luxury communism sort of for fun, because this is actually the name of a New York Times article that came out a couple of years ago in which the, the author wanted to paint the vision of a society that was mostly like, I guess, going to be sort of like the Star Trek holodeck, which you could just summon up this, that, or the other experience or food or whatever as you like, because the marginal cost of production in some future is going to be so low that we don't even need to use traditional economic thinking. I think that we're so far away from this eventuality that it still seems to be in the land of silliness. And I don't want to insult any of your listeners, by the way. I, I encourage you to read the book and see why I am a little skeptical of these kinds of things. Everything from the Venus Project, which is, oh, if we just gather a bunch of sunlight with this very sophisticated and beautiful looking uh, architecture, then somehow we'll be able to transmute that energy into all the plenty that we ever needed. And this, this kind of thinking goes, you know, to Jeremy Rifkin, who's known for it. Uh, prior to that, I believe one of the neo-Marxists, uh, whose name escapes me. And, and then prior to that, back to Marx and Marx's remnant, where imagines a technologically sophisticated society one so sophisticated that Marx imagines that we're no longer going to have to to think in traditional economic terms about production and about work, about labor, the cost of labor, and so on. I think this kind of fanciful thinking is is the kind of stuff that people are talking about right now because they really imagine that it can be true. And in a world after collapse, we're going to have to double down on some of our orthodox economics, not the other way around. So that's, that's my main criticism of it. Now, the centerpiece, at least I would argue, the centerpiece of you know, traditional economics and the argument in favor of classic financialized capitalism is the so-called calculation problem that was, uh, amazingly enough, put forth by Ludwig von Mises in 1922. Could you tell us a bit about the calculation problem and whether you think uh, there are any workarounds for it besides the market? Yeah, I, I will. And in fact, I'd like to go ahead and mention someone who I think is, if anyone is to be listened to in terms of workarounds for this, uh, would be f first and foremost, uh, Eleanor Ostrom of the Ostrom School. She she is a, 
a cosmopolitan liberal like you and me, so she would be more in our camp, I guess, as it were. It's, she's certainly not <clears throat> a socialist, but she won the Nobel Prize for talking about the evolution of the commons. Uh, one of the major exponents of this kind of thinking about reverting certain kinds of uh, property and, and certainly you know, the digital space to the commons is um, a contemporary thinker whom I don't mention in the book, but maybe in the next book or so, I'll mention him as a guy named Michelle Bowens. He's the heads up the P2P Foundation. He's got some really interesting ideas on how some things can be in the commons. And this comes out of his, you know, uh, his, what I would call kind of a socialist background or this uh, more egalitarian sensibility. But one thing about Bowens is that he also acknowledges the classic calculation problem that Mises, I think, won in the 20th century and we really ought to be familiar with. And that's, that's as follows. If you don't have a system of property, prices, profit, and loss, it becomes exceedingly difficult to figure out an intersubjective matrix of value, i.e. what capital gets allocated to what uses in a rational way. In other words, in the absence of a price system where the price of any particular thing is an information wrapped in an incentive, there it becomes exceedingly difficult to know what it means, much less whose perspective should hold sway for the use of some resource. Of course, we can recall the times of the Soviet Union when all of, all of what you might call capital or capital goods was state-owned and there was a bureaucracy, centralized bureaucracy govern, governing it. There were really difficulties among the Soviets just figuring out how many shoes to make or how many screws to make <laughs> and what sizes of screws because there was no there was very little basis except the plans of the state itself to determine what was needed in that instance you have these really weird phenomena such as the soviets had more shoes than anybody else in the world st- stacked in warehouses that nobody wanted and they had black markets of shoes from the west where the emergent properties of prices were operating in the shadows of the Soviet economy. And of course, the shoes that were being made for the citizens, presumably at low to no cost, were, were sitting in warehouses unwanted. These are the kind of distortionary effects that, that happen when you try to rationally allocate resources as a person or a committee, rather than through the price system that takes a, a f- much more full-fledged account of the decentralized wishes and desires of people operating in a complex economy. So whenever we talk about prices, property, and profit and loss for any entity, whether it's a corporation or a nonprofit or any kind of, or a government, we want to think about revenue and excessive cost because that usually means whether or not some entity is going to be alive or not, persist in time. And we want prices because they are a more rational way to allocate resources and send you a signal to look for substitutes if the price of some input is too high. And of course, property is is the notion that without which it's very difficult to trade if you don't have a property right in some good. It's hard to trade it in a market to get, get it to where it needs to go. So those three basic institutions, I believe, still need to be there. And when you stray from that, you better have a very good system for doing so. And it may be that technology helps us with this. 
And it may be that commons management on the order of the kinds of technological solutions someone like a Michelle Ballins is imagining is uh, going to help us move towards a state where we can have a, a greater balance between the commons and markets and market prices. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And certainly in, in you know, 1922 or even 1965, the ability to solve that problem of what to produce, who ought to consume what, and how much should be invested in the next generation of producing what were non-solvable, right? And the uh, Soviet Union was a fine example. Even East Germany, which was a fairly high-tech country in some ways, couldn't do it. And of course, North Korea today is trying to do it. Presumably, they have computers, but they can't do it. But I do wonder if we had a more sophisticated, nuanced, real-time uh, social signaling system about uh, how we rank order our consumption beliefs, because that's one of the important things about pricing, right? I decide, well, you know, I might prefer a, a Peter Luger steak dinner, but I don't prefer it 12 times more than I do a Big Mac, right? So it helps us rank order our consumption with respect to uh, the demands on uh, resources, you know, capital, work, uh, land, cattle, et cetera. Uh, but there may be other ways. And uh, so I, I do hold open and encourage people to explore you know, other forms of ways to balance production, consumption, and investment. And I haven't yet seen anything convincing, but I'm not convinced it's not possible. Amen. And look, the real lesson, one of the major through lines of after collapse and indeed of the social singularity is that we need institutional experimentation because someone may well find a, a way of uh, splitting the baby. I'll just give you a quick example. In the digital space where uh, a good is not, you know, we talked about this idea of rivalry, non-rivalrous, non-excludable goods. You know, some some digital goods seem to be, you know, infinitely replicatable or at least close to close to being that way. And so we get some really interesting phenomena in the digital space. Likewise, with digital ledgers and blockchains, you have these interesting hybrids of something being considered a commons, for example, an open source programming system like Ethereum, that it also has a price mechanism associated with it. I wouldn't say that the way the commons of Ethereum is governed is sort of immune to you know, a single master, and yet there's a price system involved. People who are experimenting with cryptocurrencies and other mechanisms in environments like Ethereum are going to find some really interesting ways, uh, not only to, to govern the commons, but to allocate resources and so on. We just need to operate with humility when doing so and not think that it's important to destroy the currently working systems that exist. Maybe it's improving upon them, maybe forming hybrids, and it's certainly at root we need room for experimentation for our institutions. We're both people who believe in pluralism and a certain amount of epistemic modesty or humility that we understand that complex systems are really hard to predict what they're going to do, right? So you got to you know, change by increments and experimentation is generally the best way. So another idea that's floating around with respect to what comes next, call it after the collapse, or instead of the collapse, uh, is a concept that I used to be quite skeptical about called post-scarcity economics. 
But then as I thought about it, I realized that, hmm, it's not the magic. Okay, we can magically wave our magic wands and our uh, 3D printers and have more than we could possibly want of everything. But rather, when you really think about it correctly, it's suppose we were able to modulate what we desire. Uh, you know, one of the fundamentals in some sense of neoclassical economics is that there's an unlimited number of material desires. Sure enough, late stage game A seems to be able to generate demand for almost anything through uh, sophisticated marketing and beeping phones and all this sort of stuff. But suppose one were to build a different kind of society where status didn't come through the shiny objects that you owned and that we had curated our information flows so that we weren't exposed to very much at all in the way of advertising. And we had a concept of enough. I mean, it's amazing. You know, the per capita GDP in the United States is $67,000 or thereabouts. So a family of three uh, would have $200,000 worth of stuff equivalent. You know, that strikes me as it's damn close to enough if we weren't being programmed by uh, kind of the inner dynamics of the money return machine, the marketing machine, the uh, attention hijacking machine to make us think that we needed more. Up till now, it probably was true. We did need more, but maybe we don't. So I've come to at least take seriously the analysis of a post-scarcity world built around, you know, discernment and uh, acceptance of enough. Yeah, I, I, think, I think maybe what distinguishes us, or in other words, points out the difference between you and me in this regard, and I don't want to misattribute any kind of view to you, but I will say that for me, the idea in some monolithic fashion of building that kind of society uh, from the top down through the, uh, as we talked about last time, the administrative ordering of society is probably not going to be the way we go about it. I think it's going to be an evolved thing. In other words, when when Bernie Sanders says we have too many types of deodorant, I, I sort of I sort of chuckle, and I'm I'm very happy with the range of options in deodorant, even though Bernie Sanders is not. That being said, I do think we're going to see an evolution of our more materialistic psychology. There's a guy named Joseph Pine who has written a couple of things on what is known as the experience economy. And I think we're really, we've already gone from a society that's based primarily on the production of goods, of like stuff, to a society that's more based on the production of knowledge and of services. And I think more and more every day people want services and indeed, they want experiences. I know that for generations younger than I, and I, and I have to admit, Jim, and I'm not trying to sound like uh, the Xer that I am, or even a boomer, God forbid, but you and I, boomer and Xer, probably see a lot about this, uh, the millennial and Gen Z or younger that we're worried about in terms of the way they comport themselves, the way, the kind of uh, sense of expectation and entitlement they have in certain contexts that we just don't share. But one thing is cool about this generation is that they really do look more for experiences and, of course, signaling these experiences. Like, here's me in Puerto Rico. Check out my picture. But I think that it, to a very great degree, they actually go for more than just the selfie. They go for the experience of being in Puerto Rico. They go for the experience of being in a virtual environment. And more and more of our time and more and more of the way we 
even even the baser aspects of how we entertain ourselves as being, you know, spending our time as mere entertainment or mere amusement is going to get richer and it's going to get more interesting and it's going to be provided more as a service. I also think that people want peak experiences. They want meaningful experiences and they want fulfillment. And if there are people who can help provide them with that or help them on the road to that, which is sometimes otherwise a solitary road, there can emerge markets in in that very thing. I also believe in markets and good governance. It's not just that we want markets and experience, but we want to be able to have more greater selection about the the kind of institutions we choose to govern us. And in so doing, I think we get this grand experimentation that is going to take us out of a materialistic stuff-based, you know, lizard brain signal with my Lamborghini, my sexual prowess kind of economy, and more uh, to one that is about fulfillment, is about experience of various kinds. And I'm, I'm really heartened by what I'm seeing just with this generation. But maybe I'm just an optimist. Yeah, like I say, I'm with you. It's the damn Xers that annoy me, right? Not the millennials. I actually like the millennials. I shake my fist at you, Jim Rudd. <laughs> uh, boomers versus Xers, right? As I, I sometimes say the end of it all will be, I call it pillow knocked, uh, where the millennials will smother all the uh, uh, existing boomers one night with a pillow and the useless Xers, as usual, will stand at their side and hand them the pillow. Well, that's, that's, that's right. That's what's wrong with my generation, Jim, and I, I, I will own that. On behalf of Generation X, I say we didn't do our job raising our kids correctly, and that's why we have a generation of kids who are traumatized and looking for every opportunity to signal their virtue and vulnerability online. But anyway, back to how we get towards enough. Uh, I'm absolutely with you. I you know, uh, loathe the idea of Bernie Sanders and anybody else saying there can only be four kinds of deodorant, goddammit, right? You know, the Game B approach is very, very different, which is to build coherent, smallish communities uh, around the Dunbar number, the first nodes, and then those nodes could interact up to maybe 10 or 12 times that and kind of a hierarchy of organization. And, uh, you know, again, in the Game B world, we see this as being pluralistic. Some communities may say, no deodorant at all. We're going to go back to the natural stink. Uh, others are going to say, only four kinds, and we're going to buy them centrally and get a hell of a good price. And so people pay a lot less for their deodorant than they used to. And then others will say, oh, any kind of deodorant. We don't give a shit about deodorant. Freedom, free choice. And uh, you know, there's a very interesting model for that, which is the Mennonites uh, and the Amish, which you can think of as kind of the same thing. They're though they would disagree. They typically, at the level of a community on the order of the Dunmar number, make these kinds of decisions. You know, the idea that no Mennonites drive cars is just not true. Some do, some don't. Some will only drive cars that are black, for instance, oddly enough. And those kinds of decisions are made at the parish level, 25 families or so. They could be things like milking machines, which many of these groups famously debated for years, and some adopted them and some didn't. 
Some said milking machines, but you can't be connected to the uh, grid. You have to have a generator, right? And uh, each separate group made its own decisions, and then they communicate with each other and compare and contrast and engage in parallel exploration of uh, social design space, essentially. Uh, and over time, they adjust their rules. That's how I see the right way to explore what comes next rather than uh, you know some top-down group telling us what to do. God damn it. Don't, don't care for that at all. I absolutely agree with you. And and the moments of agreement we have are wonderful moments. So I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll only add that it's in these kind of sub-Dunbar experiments where I think really a lot of the action for humanity is going forward, that we're going to start to figure out how to engage in these more meaningful communities. They're, they're going to not only be restored, but they're going to be the source of some of the most important features of their lives, of our lives. And they may come at a cost to us, absolutely, but they will be chosen. They will reflect our conceptions of the good. And that pluralism will be paradoxically planetary. That would be my hope. I think we're on the same page there. Now let's go on to the next thing in your book, which you know left me scratching my head. You know, I'm kind of a down-to-earth kind of guy, and some of this uh, kind of woo-woo stuff leaves me a little confused. So uh, you lay out this taxonomy of eros masculine, thanatos masculine, eros feminine, and thanatos feminine. And I go, what the hell's all that shit? But, you know, Max is a really smart guy. There must have been some reason he put that in there. He didn't kill those trees for no reason at all. Could you take us through this model and what you think it means? Yeah, absolutely will. Look, I, I, I'm i not all about the woo, okay? But I do want to acknowledge to your listeners and to the world, indeed, that I have been very, very influenced uh, by the Vedic traditions recently, particularly facets of Hinduism, uh, the yogic traditions, Buddhism, uh, the, the yamas, the niyamas, that, that sort of stuff. And they have some very, very interesting things to say that I think go to some fundamental levels of practice. But I also um, am comfortable with talking about, in some sense, human forces or human energies that impel us, for lack of a better way of putting it, we were evolved to have certain kinds of responses, usually in the face of fear. So when I experience fear, which is very reptilian brain, what comes next is a kind of response of a certain sort. And I'm trying to come up with this taxonomy as a basic way of looking at the world when we try to um, adopt or there's an imbalance in these forces. And let, let me just sketch it for you. The two basic axes are masculine and feminine. And the masculine paradigm is uh, what we might call a controlling paradigm. Force, fuck, fight uh, is, is the way I, I describe it. And that will be familiar to those who are at all feel familiar with men traditionally in endocrinology and what testosterone can do. I'm not going to be doctrinaire about that. It's just say stereotypes exist for a, for a reason. Men, on, on average, if you throw a stone into a group of men, tend to be the ones who will turn to force forcing or fighting to get something done. Now, the feminine side of things, they're, they're really a cluster of what I call flirt, fawn, and facilitate. They're much more about 
care than coercion, much more about compassion, and, and this paradigm much more about the fluidity or the flow of things. So then you, you take these feminine flirt fawn facilitate energies and at one end and the masculine energies at the other, and you cross that with another axis, and that is Eros and Thanatos. That's from good old Freud, Sigmund Freud, who thought that these were motivations beyond the pleasure principle of some kind of benthamite pleasure pain, what motivates human beings. He thought that, you know, there was a motivation, an, a generative motivation, that is to create something, and one that is also destructive or to end, to bring things to an end. And I think at some level, we have these tendencies in, in us in response to fear. So if you bear with me for a moment, uh, listeners and Jim, Let's put all these together, cross the axes, and we get four quadrants. And that's what you that's what you listed out earlier. Eros masculine, Eros feminine, Thanatos masculine, and Thanatos feminine. The Eros masculine is a generative form, and that is force control. Make it so, right? Then the Thanatos masculine is burn it down, end it now. The Eros feminine is um, let it flow. And then the uh, Thanatos feminine is let it go, let it pass. You can imagine these as kind of like mantras for these different energies. And what I argue in the book based on these, this matrix is basically that we've got way too much energy in the mas masculine. We're appealing to this masculine energy way too much, which is coercive, which is about forcing control when what we need to do is embrace the feminine and let things flow and let things go a little bit more than we do, because therein we find the the magic of uh, magic. I don't. I'm, I'm using that uh, to playfully the magic of or, um, organizational complexity. So, what's the significance of this as we think about collapse and probably more particularly uh, how we rebuild on the other side? Well, this is a through line throughout the book. And remember, this was written during the time of the pandemic. And during the pandemic, what, what I found as I practiced uh, from, which I learned from you guys, which is, you know, using a little bit of the OODA loop methodology, which is to, to sit back and regard the situation a little bit before you make a decision or allow others to make a decision on your behalf. And we, what we see is this deference to authority or this this kind of um, submission reflex almost to authorities to trust the experts, listen to the experts, listen to what they tell you to do. And I understand that this is trying to overcome a collective action problem. But when we too quickly, um, you know, just submit to this submission reflex, what we get is sometimes permanent, unhealthy, masculine dominance hierarchies. And by dominance hier hierarchies, I mean hierarchies that are built on suppression or threat or this masculine paradigm of control. And what we don't get is what we need, which is a much more fluid and self-organizing state of affairs. This is a through line throughout the book. And in particular, there's a chapter on the, on the breakdown of hierarchies. And in that, I really get into the complex system stuff, particularly of Yanir Baryam of the New England complex systems uh, group out of Boston, I think, and his work. And I, and I take great inspiration from that and apply that 
and as well as Adrian, Adrian Bijan's work on the law of flow or the constructal law. And I sort of marry these to a cluster concept that I call, you know, basically let it flow or the law of flow. And that really is that sometimes we can have good protocols and good heuristics that allow superior self-organization that would otherwise be gained through this top-down management or administrative ordering of society. Okay, why don't you, uh, it comes later in my list, but since we're there, go for it. Talk us about the, uh, the law of flow. Yeah, I really love this idea. I've been in love with it. The Adrian Bijan, who who came up with this idea, he was sitting on a plane when he returned uh, back to North Carolina. He's at Duke University. And if you hear my accent, I have a North Carolina accent, so it feels like I'm talking about home, even though I'm a Chapel Hill fan. But he's at Duke. We can forgive him for that. And uh, Professor Bijan had this idea. He was listening to uh, Prigogine talk about dissipative systems. And Prigogine had said something curious before he, he died in that lecture that set uh, Adrian Bajan to thinking. And it was that these systems are arbitrary, for their, that they, the, the way they are configured is, is rather arbitrary. And this set Bajan to thinking about, well, what is it then that we can see about the world uh, that would explain these dissipative systems. And he came up with the constructal law. And the constructal law is basically this. Any system to persist in time or to live must accommodate for flows that impinge upon it from without or from outside the system. So if you have currents of flux or flow and change that are impinging on your system, you have to have a way of accommodating those flows. And what he sees throughout all of nature and makes staggeringly good predictions with this in his uh, engineering is that almost everything follows these vascular patterns. So we want to see in nature these vascular patterns of the, from the raging river to the tributaries to, to the streams and the brooks on up to the, the top of the mountain. And when we reverse that, we'll see, you know, everything flowing eventually into the raging river. But these vascular patterns, whether they're in our bodies, our brains, our river systems, uh, the way our transportation systems look, are all because life is trying to accommodate for flow, for energetic flow throughout these systems. That's not woo-woo. That's really science. Although there have been people who accuse it of being woo, I think it's actually a uh, Quite an interesting way. He actually sometimes describes it as the fourth law of, for, uh, of thermodynamics, which is which is quite interesting. But you can't deny the vascular nature of the world around us. Another uh, person from the complexity field uh, who, who I believe brings some additional light to this, because you know, unlike some at the Santa Fe Institute, I am a Perigogene fan, and I do find the idea of dissipative systems quite helpful. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't go far enough, and it providing very much in the way of scaffolding for the emergences that we actually see. The last book written by one of my favorite people, John Holland, uh, the guy who came up with genetic algorithms and a whole lot more, uh, he wrote a book, frankly, isn't entirely finished. You can tell that, you know, he unfortunately passed away before it could be entirely polished, but it's called Signals and Boundaries, 
building blocks for complex adaptive systems. He gets into the fact that at some point in emergence, you start getting membranes and you start getting rules and procedures that are built on what passes the membrane and that these then become signaling modalities, et cetera. Uh, so while flows is a good place to start, it strikes me that you then also have to start thinking about segregation where entities put boundaries around themselves and allow things to come through the semi-permeable membrane uh, and that that's a really important way to bootstrap information processing and kind of call it the the history of information processing on earth, which in some sense is the story of, you know, that led to us. Well, and that's, a, and, and, you know, you can see the, the interplay between these holonic systems within systems. Whenever you look at the boundaries, the porous boundaries of the human body from, from, you know, it is not completely a continuous network from my liver to my brain. There are definitely these, they're interconnected systems, but they're porous boundaries and there are certainly systems within systems. And of course, you and I on, on our, the first podcast we did together, forgive me for failing to remember the number, but we did talk about holacracy as being one of the, one of the systems of organization management that really does pay attention to this idea of systems within systems, uh, holonic systems and porous boundaries that allow for information and regulation from without. And that's really interesting stuff, Jim. You're absolutely right. You, uh, you know, uh, anticipated me again about four line items ahead. I have uh, a line item said Morningstar packing and holacracy. Tell us about holacracy. I really would like to learn more about it. I've done some reading on it, but I, I'm nowhere near the expert that you are. So uh, tell us about what it is and how it works and experiences in the real world that, you know, demonstrate that it can work. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, happy to. Um, well, first of all, a guy named Brian Robertson would be an excellent guest on your show for future shows. He is the best exponent of this theory, probably uh, because he is the guy who dreamt up holacracy. And he's got a really good book called Holacracy. So I'd encourage folks to look into it uh, more deeply, talking to you, Jim, and letting him on your show or going and getting the book. But I'll do my best to describe holacracy in, in a quick and dirty way. So most, most organizations have trouble scaling in some way for, for various reasons. And the, the traditional hierarchical organization, you can say that there's energy and information flowing in organizations of various kinds, and that we, we know that uh, based on our good old uh, reading of um, Ronald Coase, that it was less expensive in terms of transaction costs to create a hierarchical organization and pay people to stay or to, to take orders. But with the economy and society becoming much more complex and the internal tools to reduce transaction costs going down themselves in price, we have now the ability to do some fantastic things with organizations that make them not so hierarchical anymore and it allows them to scale. It also, holacracy in particular, bring, tends to bring out the best in people by harnessing their uh, autonomy and their decision-making power and their local knowledge. But I say local knowledge because, again, holacracy uses circles, which is this reference to the holon, right? You have systems within systems. You have a lot of things. You can do anything you want in a holocratic organization as long as it's in service of the mission. The mission is the boss, you might say, and the only boss. 
because there are no managers. They completely get rid of management hierarchy. But it's not egalitarian either. There's differential pay. There's differential responsibilities. And that's the way it should be, frankly. I'm just not into all of this egalitarian democratic organization stuff that some people are into. It can work from time to time. But I think holacracy and systems of self-management like them are superior in that they allow for organization in terms of teams and that these teams have these porous boundaries that they deal and they deal effectively with what's, what is known as tensions, okay? So you have these roles and responsibilities within a holocratic organization where the role is like, I'm the web guy, I'm, I'm web designer, or I'm uh, the account, accounting. And the role orientation really causes people to see you in a f- much more functional light in light of how you establish relationships to the rest of the organization. But within your particular circle, you're constantly raising what is known as tensions. Now, in traditional organizations, tensions are things sometimes to be avoided or bucks to be passed because you don't want to get caught caught handling the hot potato of a tension. You don't want to bring something up to your boss or your manager that might be inflaming or make it look in, make you look insubordinate. So you can sometimes suppress that. With holocratic organizations, they bring up and process tensions in real time as much as they can because it is in that, through that, treating your organization as part of an evolutionary fitness landscape that you want to be able to process what they're what are called tensions or uncertainties you, you can call them what you like, but there's something niggling that's wrong and you think there might be a better way. Processing attention is also about inviting others in your team to figure out a way to do something better. And sometimes that means changing the protocols within the organization. That's how the organization evolves in the wider evolutionary fitness landscape of the market. And it is a fantastic biological metaphor all the way down and works fantastically. Holacracy is now operates in over a thousand uh, organizations around the world. And it might even be more now because the last time I heard that was about four years ago talking to Brian. It could be 2000 now for all I know. And at the end of the day, if you want to be able to scale your organization in some way, you're going to have to adopt, you're going to have to adopt features of decentralization but if you really want to, to grow to scale, holacracy may be a good one way to do it. Yeah, I'd love to talk to that guy. That sounds very game B, where we have stipulated that we need to have position-based leadership rather than role-based leadership, meaning who's best at this particular decision to be the uh, the leader of the folks and a fluid, reorganizing, constantly uh, doctrine of how we get the work done. And it also fits in, uh, I love the description about the tensions. I like that because uh, even before I even had, had anything to do with Game B in my own business career as an entrepreneur and later as a corporate executive, the one value I always put number one is real intellectual honesty from top to bottom, that nobody hides the bad news. You never shoot the messenger. And, you know, as you intimated, what is a company? But it's a group of people working together to try to optimize their work on a co-evolutionary fitness landscape. 
And if you're not dealing with the information as quickly as you can and as honestly and unskewed as you can, you're going to be grossly suboptimized on your mission. And once you understand that, you realize why so many companies are dysfunctional because intellectual honesty is not the organizing principle. Rather, it's cover your ass, you know, uh, don't put your head up, don't be the messenger of bad news, claim credit for shit you didn't do, you know, all these kinds of degenerate corporate bureaucratic behaviors that those of us who have worked in big companies have seen. Oh, absolutely. It's it's really that these pathologies are can can be shown to flow directly from formalized hierarchies where you don't have the kind of holonic systems or matches to your capabilities that you're describing. And and really, you know, this it, it operates on a on a fear-based model. And again, you know, I'm going back to this idea of control where you you, you know, this this masculine paradigm is this idea of control. You know, you think about the smartest guys in the room, the Jeffrey Skillings or Ken Lays of the world, they're going to make these fantastic decisions because they were educated at Harvard and so on. They're the ones that are going to make make the decision, let's run it up the chain of command. And of course, very often these kind of organizations fly too high, too close to the sun and uh, come down in flames as did uh, Enron, which was Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling's organization. And others have this problem too. Some people who are CEOs adopt holacracy just because they're tired. The decision fatigue that is required of having things run up the flagpole constantly is awful, especially when you're surrounded by competent, brilliant people and you want to bring out the best of them. Holacracy is certainly one way to do it. So I I, I do write about holacracy to a great, in one chapter, a lot in the book, because I see this as something that we're going to need to do after collapse. It's not just the collapse of our of our hierarchical governance and financial system that is uh, based on, you know, this sort of mass collusion between the Federal Reserve and the U- U.S. federal government. But it is also um, the, the, the collapse of, of these, if you don't adjust or adapt your hierarchical structures that are more rigid and formalized, then other companies are going to start running rings around you as they learn how to do it better. You're going to either be forced to adapt or die. I love it. Barry Gainby. Yep. Do introduce me to this guy if you still have his email. Yeah. And send me a copy or you know a link to the book and I'll get it. And I will definitely have this guy on. I've known it's existed. I'll make now the commitment to do a deep dive and bring it to the people of the Jim Rutt Show into the Game B world. Now, if we think about holacracy and corporate governance, it's a machinery for getting things done. You also write about majoritarian uh, electoral democracy, representative democracy, and you see a lot of problems with that. Why don't you give us your thoughts on you know, electoral democracy and representative democracy and how can that be improved? Oh gosh, I'm gonna try to um, I'm gonna try to be nice because I usually oh don't don't be nice, be obnoxious. Come on, this is the Jim Rutcho. You can say fuck, right? Yeah, okay. Well, I think Jim, it's a fucking spectacle, and I think the the probability that your vote will have an effect on the outcome of an election, particularly if you don't subscribe to either of these two miserable tribes is uh, the, it, it's frankly a shit show. We, we, we cry our teardrop in the ocean every two years, four years, and we expect the tide to turn. And this governance process is supposed to hold sway over 350 million people in the United States. 
It's absurd. We need to devolve so many more things as the Constitution prescribes, and we don't. Nobody pays attention to the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. And look, I'm not even going to be a constitutional maximalist in this. It's like, at least if we did that, we wouldn't have this great game of seeing what sort of power we can install to try to manage this teetering hierarchy. I just think it's silly. Anybody who's interested in complex adaptive systems as you and I and folks in Game B sees there's something deeply problematic about this idea. Now, frankly, sometimes around election times, they get much more partisan and, and they get into their hooliganism and team sports. But at the end of the day, I think people who are interested in the kinds of things we are see that it is a, a system that is broken. And in order to get the kind of experimentation we need with institutions and superior ways of life, even culturally, we're going to have to have uh, a lot less stake in this process that is really nothing but a show to make us feel like we have some sort of skin in the game that we have no skin in. Or very little. Yeah, and I love the fact that you referenced the 10th Amendment. I, I call that out fairly frequently as you know, frankly, enabling states to secede. If you read it honestly, it's, I'll read it out loud. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And if you actually take those words seriously, states have the right to secede because that was not forbidden to the states. And so therefore they, they and the people have that capability. And in fact, you know, you follow that in your book and you say that states ought to have the right to secede. And I think you also imply smaller units than states. Talk us through the argument about what secession could mean and why it might be a good thing, contrary to the American uh, lore of the moment. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to. And I, you know, I do have some regrets coming on your show with a Southern accent talking about secession. But here we are. Hey, hey, you know, this this is the Jim Rutt show. If they don't want a cookie, fuck them. <laughs> well, I just want to reassure the listeners, nevertheless, that I'm not here to talk about secession for good things or bad things. What I'm trying to point out is at the level of systems, whenever you have the ability to secede or some sort of separatist movement, whether that be the Basque country, whether that be Scotland, whether that be for cultural reasons or economic, in terms of Brexit, in terms of by God, you know, there's nothing there's nothing that resembles Vermont that people in New Hampshire uh, have culturally, and yet they're right next to each other. They're, they both sound like New Englanders, but beyond that, they have very different sensibilities in the way they in governance, and it's a good thing too. What I what I want to do is extrapolate from that that the more we have this localized government governance, the less we're likely to see catastrophic failures that are universal. Because any small experiment that doesn't work at the local level is probably not going to have as great an effect on the surrounding system. And this goes back to your idea of porous borders and the, the John Holland uh, ideas. It's really, or if you like Nicholas Taleb, who in his book Anti-Fragile talks about uh, the, the, the idea that when you have this system-wide monolithic set of policies, if you're wrong, the whole system goes foobar. But if you have localized experimentation, you're much more likely to get something else that's good and that perhaps you can even copy in your system. 
or improve upon after having copied it. And this really is thinking of it as like forking the code. People who are interested in cryptocurrencies and dis- distributed ledgers will understand the beauty and blessing of open source systems is that you can consent to belong to them, i.e. the consent of the governed, and you can fork the code if you don't like what they're doing with the code and want to have some something else that is similar but has certain properties that are sufficiently different to where you forked from, that this is a good thing, that this creates a healthy ecosystem of value in a pluralistic world. I totally agree with that. And this is the kind of thinking that to a great degree animates the book. And it really goes into this idea of flow systems because attached to what flows in these systems are real human beings with real sovereign choices. And it's not that I want to see them escaping any certain responsibilities they might have to their civil association, but rather that they are able to realize their conceptions of the good with people who share their sensibilities. Very good. And going on from that, you take a pretty good dive into the idea of subsidiarity and you lay out a uh, just a you know rough, I realize, pencil sketch of uh, essentially a, a series of hierarchies of size of organizing units, but with some strong sense on what should go at what level. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's imagine. Let's talk uh, for a moment about an idea uh, called cellular democracy. And this is uh, this may have some parallels to liquid democracy in some sense because the the dynamics of liquid democracy may generate results that are similar to what I'm describing. But this this starts at a different starting point. I think with cellular democracy. Cellular democracy assumes that the most powerful and most sovereign uh, collective unit is the cell, okay? And so you you might only have very few people in this cell, and that they would be in your neighborhood. And they have the right to send a delegation to the next superstratum above them. So you might start with 30 people. I just use threes with zeros in order to make it a good visual for people to imagine in their minds, but you might have a group of 30. Then you might have a group of 300. If you like Dunbar's number better, maybe you start with 15 and go to 150 and then go to 1,500. But you're scaling up in this uh, fashion and delegating to the superordinate layer for only certain aspects of governance that need to be dealt with at that layer. So so you have a, a system of subsidiarity subsidiarity rule being that you you delegate authority to the most local feasible power uh, and you do so because there are functional reasons to do so because they are able to handle those tasks with uh, cellular cellular democracy you get that and you get it by virtue of the folks in that cell deciding whether or not the superstrata are benefiting them in their relationship to those superstrata. But at the end of the day, you you guys can always vote to pull out and your vote is sovereign. And it's much easier to get to unanimity with 13 people than it is, or sorry, uh, 15 people than it is 150 or 1,500 up to scale. That being said, it flips this idea that the federal government should be the, the all pervasive power to put its thumb on the scales of justice on whatever the matter is. 
and, and instead is much more like Switzerland or even Liechtenstein in that it, it's highly localized power. And it still preserves your majoritarian democracy, which I'm not a huge fan of. I think there are other mechanisms that are that are good. But for folks who like democracy, I would certainly take this over the kind that we have today. Yeah, now, how do we deal with, though, because, uh, you know, again, subsidiarity fully stated says that decisions should be taken at the lowest level in which it is feasible to address that problem. And sometimes when people are advocates uh, for subsidiarity, they forget the last phrase at the level appropriate to address that problem. We do have some problems that by their nature require coordination at a very high level. And I think, you know, the classic example is climate change. Uh, how do you envision a uh, politics based on this vision of subsidiarity and granted power moving up the chain, uh, dealing with a global level issue uh, that requires collective action by everybody? Well, what, for one thing, you uh, so there, there's two points here, and I, I want to parse these, these two points. I think it's exceedingly difficult and, and problematic to think that, think that any decision needs to be able to be handled collectively at a global scale. And I know you will want to push back at that, but we've seen with so many of uh, these, that there's so many problems of defection and collective action agreements, especially when you have varying degrees of skin in whatever game you're playing. So let me let me give you a specific example of a Paris agreement or a Kyoto protocol or any of these these agreements. First, you have to accept that there's going to be some global enforcement body that is empowered to hold sway over defectors, whether they defect from the agreement um, by violating it or they defect from the agreement by not entering into it to begin with. This is a huge game theoretical problem. I think that persistent time is why we've seen the dissolution of these 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 very nice sounding agreements, but they don't ever amount to anything because people either de facto or de jure defect from the agreements or, or ex post ex ante, whatever you like. They're difficult to enforce. We don't want to create an, a Leviathan enforcement power at the scale of the globe. I think that would be very dangerous and stupid. So, yeah, I'm not as uh, excited about the idea of collective action problems at the scale of the planet. You might be able to find me one and you might be able to find a way to, to resolve it. It's much better or much simpler than these sort of Westphalian nation state agreements for, for carbon and methane. But at the end of the day, I think they're they're problematic and they're not really going to work. People like the, the countries like China and country and other countries are going to violate them where, where they can because they have deep, deep interests in doing so. And that's perhaps a shame, but perhaps not. I mean, we can understand someone like in India, a country like India, wanting to be able to develop before starting to torpedo their development. And I'm much more sanguine about adopting rapidly adopting waste elimination technologies and other carbon sequestration technologies than I am about, say, implementing a global carbon tax, although I am willing to, I'm, I'm not going to be Dr. Nairn saying that I, I wouldn't support that. Now, as far as going back to your question, it all depends, right? And it would take some sort of, uh, some sort of if you had a constitutional subsidiarity amendment, that would be great. Your, your Supreme Court is going to always 
have to deal with the question of what is the appropriate level of decision making. I don't think any of us are going to be able to make that decision unilaterally because we're always going to disagree about what that level is. So that's the in a system like ours, that would be the function of the courts to decide. And then that subsidiarity stratum would be determined and go into settled law. Now, uh, I had a very interesting guest on the podcast a couple of months ago, Anatole Levin, who basically agreed that global firm enforcement mechanisms were not going to work. No one's going to agree to them. People are going to cheat, et cetera. But he did lay out some interesting ideas and how that, uh, at least at the nation state level, we could coerce, bribe, seduce each other into cooperating to address climate change. You know, for instance, imagine the West uh, got together and agreed amongst ourselves on a heavy carbon tax. And then we all mutually agreed, you know, it's a, say 500 million people of the most advanced economies, uh, that we were going to put tariffs on anyone who traded with us equal to 125% of such carbon taxes, unless those countries enforced those carbon taxes locally and administered them honestly. And one could see a, uh, you know, gradually cascading agreement where first, uh, you know, let's say India says, well, shit, I don't want to give up all this trade with these countries. So I'm going to do a carbon tax. Well, now it's my incentive to turn that tariff against the the Chinese and the Bangladeshis because otherwise uh, my internal industries are being screwed. And you could see a virtuous circle whereby we could have sort of global agreement of carbon tax and or import-export offsets that grow organically through arm's length agreements amongst the nation states. Yeah, that, that's, th- those are interesting ideas. And I think, um, I, th- I think they're interesting at the level of, of the you know, bureaucratic notions of sticks and carrots, administratively ordering society through the process of uh, using inst- incentives and threats. And I think that's exactly how it have to play out. And you're going to find all sorts of opportunities for people to game systems in that way and get fewer good results or hope for outcomes. You're going to have a lot of unintended consequences. The more you have create the ability to game systems, whether it's carbon credits, you know, what sorts of sticks and carrots are you talking about? And f- we need always to ask the question, are these competing values? Is global warming or car, um, climate change, the mitigation of climate change, is that value as it is in comparison with other values, such as the developing of the world's poorest people lifting out of poverty, which does require energy and does require the release of CO2 and methane, are these are these values at odds? And to the extent that you can find a way to... to make them more commensurable values, that I think is a good thing. But again, we have to be very careful about, you know, bureaucratic, uh, you know, sticks and threats management of, of these situations because they create too many opportunities for people to game the system and are not really easy to enforce at the end of the day. But I do think that that, that, that is more or less the way you would have to look at it in order to prevent defection. I don't know whether or not you would always get it, especially with a, a country like a China that is extremely powerful. But certainly uh, open to that as an idea. I think uh, we're, we're much more likely to get traction on the mitigation technologies front and the adaptation front. But the, the folks who think that 
that we're going to burn up in 12 years are not going to like me to say that. And I realize it. Of course, that is true. It's an example of failed sense making. We are not going to burn up in 12 years, people, or I guess we're down to nine years now. On the other hand, there are scenarios that could get pretty ugly by the end of the 21st century if we have not taken climate change seriously. And this is a classic collective action problem. And you know, I use it as a stressor to look at each proposal. If we can't deal with this problem, it may not be sufficient for the cause. But we could argue about this one all day, and uh, I think let's move on. You talked about it just in, a little bit more than in passing, but it happens to be one of my pet favorite ideas, uh, was the distinction between the English common law and the Roman civil law, essentially the regulatory uh, European model actually that came from Rome and the Code of Justinian. Could you tell us a little bit about that and maybe compare and contrast the two and where you come down between those two forms of jurisprudence? Yeah, thanks. I I appreciate your noticing that. And it it really calls to mind again this um, distinction between the masculine and the feminine forms of law. And those practitioners of the common law may may uh, not like the idea that I'm describing it as feminine, but well, tough shit. It is. Um, it is facilitation and flow versus uh, coercion and control. I do appreciate the common law much more because common law is a kind of bottom-up law. It, it considers the circumstances of time and place and then, enter, and then tries to create precedents based on that. And those legal precedents can be overturned in time as information or tensions prevent themselves. So you notice I use the word tensions there. It's very much like holacracy internally, where you're processing tensions. You're processing the frictions that people have one another in their persons, their properties, and whatever. And in the common law, it's really a highly localized way of determining what can be rather cosmopolitan or universalistic rules. But it's not done based on these these wise stewards of the law that we imagine are going to Washington and getting corrupted, uh, which is the, the way statute law gets done. We elect a representative to, and we, we imagine that they have some kind of wisdom and then, and they don't lose that wisdom and all the horse trading and the bullshit they have to, to get their bill through. And once that bill goes through, it blankets the land for everyone without any real input from local knowledge or the distributed knowledge of people around the country or of some particular industry or other. We want always to respect the fact of local knowledge. Statute law is really, it's an imposed form of law that has less to do, it has more to do with planning and the administrating, administrative ordering of society than it does with allowing protocols to be designed from the bottom up uh, in the manner of, say, the Lex Mercatoria or the English common law. I think these are far more robust and anti-fragile forms of law. And I would just assume as we, that we not have statute law at all. But if we do, that it's highly, highly localized. All right, let's move on to our last topic here. This is something that there are many people in the Game B world that are interested in. I personally have always been skeptical about it, but I am open to hear uh, you know, good arguments on how this might work. And that's the idea of polyarchy, which you talk about some in the book. Could you uh, lay out what polyarchy is and why you think it might work? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Jim. It's you know, it's not that far away 
from what uh, we have been talking about in polycentrism. Polycentrism is the idea that we have these uh, multiple jurisdictions with diverse rules and cultures within them, and people can migrate amongst those jurisdictions and experiments to realize their particular conceptions of the good with other people who share their sensibilities. And you and I agreed pretty much that this was a good idea. The difference between polyarchy and polycentricity is that it takes out this idea that territory has some kind of special magic associated with it. We are so inured to the idea that a jurisdiction is something that has to be somehow attached to some patch of soil, and it strips that notion away. Now, of course, some things that are attached to a patch of soil need to be administered locally on on the soil, and it makes sense for the jurisdictional aspects of, of the law to be attached to territory, like whether or not we drive on the right in Texas, right, rather than the left. But most things that we talk about, like how we get our health care or or what kinds of uh, how, how we get our health insurance or what kind of thing systems that we want to enter into, these really don't need to be attached to territory. This is really an artifact of, of a history of domination and conquest that the world is known for ever since you know, the time basically when they, they were settled agriculture and you learned that you could come to dominate a whole territory simply by taking some of the farmer's grain in the form of taxes and organize and build a hierarchy atop that system. You know, we don't need to do things that way. And now in this day and age where we have so many different ways of coming to uh, arriving at a consensus which we call consensus mechanisms, there really is no reason that I sitting in Texas or Mexico or Canada shouldn't be able to enter into some sort of civic association where I pay a certain level of tax in order to enjoy the benefits of a certain kind of health insurance system. It, it really doesn't make much sense. And, and so the idea comes from a guy named Dupuis, who is a Belgian philosopher uh, of, of, I believe, the 19th century. He, in fact, he wrote his book around the time of uh, Marx's Capital, or uh, maybe the Communist Manifesto. But his idea was, why shouldn't you be able to join a civic association from your dressing gown and slippers? All you have to do is go to register. Instead of joining a party or voting for a party, and having your party fight for who gets to win, you have multiple concurrent parties, and you live by the rules and auspices of those multiple current concurrent parties or ideological affiliations or civic associations, however you like, and then you allow them the ability to uh, resolve their disputes in court. This is n- really no different from what we were talking about before in subsidiarity, only it appreciates the idea that not everything needs to be attached to territory. I just always scratch my head about that. I mean, maybe it's that I'm not looking at a, with a wide enough lens, but let's say, for instance, uh, the rules on whether you're going to allow drinking in public or not. That seems to be a very geographic condition, or and maybe and this is a little bit, and that one you know, seems absolutely geographic because you have a quality of life decision. Either we allow drinking in public or we don't, right? And, you got one choice on it. It's not hard to see how you can do that in a uh, poly 
polycentric kind of way. Well, you, it's easy to see in a polycentric way. It's hard to see in a polyarchic way. And maybe it, 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 that is not a suitable thing for, the, for polyarchy, right? Polyarchy is a yes and. It is not an ultimate thing, right? So you might live in a jurisdiction that finds it important for the, for the public morality not having any drinking in public. And then you walk over to your neighboring jurisdiction and find that everybody's out on the streets having a nice celebration and they're holding drinks. That's fine, but it's really not clear why I have to have a certain associated re- regulations over the, the mode and manner of, through which I purchase my health insurance, for example. And we not only have a state patchwork of laws, <clears throat> but ever since the ACA, some of those have been completely overcome by the federal government. So we all live under this certain kind of healthcare regime in the United States that is a crazy patchwork of shit, if you want to know the truth. It's a terrible system. It could not possibly have been designed. Just features of it are designed, and it creates all manner of distortions. The idea is, why shouldn't you be able to use Singaporean healthcare system or the Swiss healthcare system? Or for that matter, just buy it on the open market according to your own lights. That might sound very libertarian to some, but it is really also quite communitarian. It's saying, look, I have more, I identify more with people in Vermont, but I don't live there. I want to join the Vermont system. Why not? For things like that, which are more like purchasing a service that seems to make a lot of sense. Let me throw a case in the middle. As a principled libertarian, you'll you probably object to the whole premise. But let's imagine. Wait, 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 wait now. I'm not a principled libertarian. I mean, the kind of stuff I'm talking about is really transcends libertarianism in a lot of ways. I understand. I understand. I know where you're coming from. I mean, you know, I, I have my own libertarian biases, too. Let me throw out the example. Just get your reaction to it, because it's an interesting intermediate case between the two that we just talked about. And that is the uh, current tendency, I believe, everywhere in the United States to require a medical degree and uh, going through a whole series of hoops and internships and all this stuff before you can do certain medical practices. There's a lot of argument that, hey, nurse practitioners could do all the same things for half the price. And frankly, a retired Navy medic could probably do them for a quarter of the price. Uh, So the idea of a bylaw guild defining who can do what in the area of medical services sort of feels like if you're going to take such things seriously, which I'm not sure you should, have to be done geographically because the idea, I suppose, is to protect people from bad decision-making. Yeah, I, I, I don't see why that one would be geographic except for the idea that it's uh, impossible to enforce otherwise. I personally think that there are all manner of ways to get you know, people's certification to get what level of uh, ability and expertise. You know, we have we have ranking and reputation systems now. We have so many other mechanisms that make it very clear. In fact, they can be far, you know, in terms of reputation and market process, can be far more damaging than um, once you get some credential, you're, you know, you're okay to practice. It's... Um, I'm I'm very skeptical that this actually really works. It might make us feel better. I'm more interested in in the market mechanisms, market transparency, and reputation systems that track every move these physicians make. 
And I certainly would want a doctor that is from the physician's underwriter laboratory than I would some some quack-tastic person, but that not everyone is. And I understand the concern. I just don't believe that um, that these kind of things always protect you from quacks and 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 that there are better mechanisms for doing so. But that's uh, what that has to do with polyarchy. It's difficult to say. I'll have to give it some thought. All righty. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, and people, this is just a sample. Uh, you know, two episodes, almost three hours, and I did not get fully through every topic I had in my topic list. So I strongly recommend that if you want to hear a uh, read a whole bunch of rich ideas, which you will not necessarily agree with all of them, check out Max's book, After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Our Ideals. Thank you, Max, for appearing on The Jim Rutt Show. Thanks, I had a ball. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.